So Matthew chapter 13, this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the weeds. So verses 24 through 30. And would you go ahead and stand with me as we read this passage together? Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word uh, that you've spoken through your son Jesus here. We pray, God, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that we could understand uh, more fully your kingdom uh, and what you desire for our lives, Lord, as we look forward uh, to the things that you will fulfill in the future. Thank you, God, for this time. Uh, pray that you would refresh our souls, God, and draw us to a deeper relationship with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so uh, we've got an office here uh, at the church, uh, a couple rooms down. This is a big, long kind of church building. So if you ever get lost in here, you know, I get lost in here sometimes too. But we've got an office in here, and we take breaks during the week uh, for lunch, like any other work job. And uh, a few weeks ago, we were in the, in the office during lunch, and uh, we were, you know, we had the, phone, the, the, the phones out, and we were talking to each other, but we still had the phones out. And we were watching YouTube videos, because that's what you do during lunch, right? And uh, we were watching some compilation videos from the TV show House Party, and their most popular seg segment, Kids Say the Darndest Things, which uh, aired from the mid-40s to the 60s. And during one of the shows, the, the host, Art Linkletter uh, asked a young boy, so they're, they're so cute, they ask these kids these questions, and he knows exactly what to ask him, and, and he asked this kid, you know, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? This kid's probably eight years old. He says, a bus driver or a pilot? And then Art asks him, suppose that uh, you're flying a plane and, and all four engines stop, At, what would you say? And the, the kid, the boy dropped his head and, and responded, our father, which art in heaven, <laughs> how would be your name? Uh, everybody starts laughing. We're all cracking up. It's, it's so cute. But it's interesting. I find it interesting that the Lord's Prayer is so common. And everybody started laughing in the audience because they all knew it was the Lord's Prayer, right? And even today, this prayer is used in TV and movies, often during scenes of desperation or in light of death. See, I don't know if you guys have seen the new movie, Deepwater Horizon, but at the end, everybody kind of like kneels down and says the Lord's Prayer. I think I've seen a couple movies this, this month, and, uh, and both of them had the Lord's Prayer in it. I thought it was interesting. Um, it's, it's known in word and said in times of desperation, but oftentimes we say things without realizing what the words actually mean. So, I mean, today, I want to look at one phrase from the pair that's often misunderstood or overlooked or or not thought about deeply, the line, your kingdom come, your will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, what does it mean, God's kingdom come? What is, what is his kingdom? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? What does it look like? Is it here now? And is it mysterious? I don't know. The kingdom of heaven can seem like some ethereal, spiritual thing that's difficult to grasp or comprehend. There are different views on what the kingdom of heaven is. Some think that we're destined to accomplish by our own effort a utopia-like society. Uh, we see this often uh, in secularism, uh, that, that we're trying to create a utopia, communism, socialism, and the like. Uh, still others think that um, the kingdom of heaven is something that we can't actually accomplish, and so we might as well just hunker down and arm up for the apocalypse until the Lord brings his kingdom. Even the Jews had an idea of what the kingdom of heaven would be like, the restoration of the golden age of the Davidic kingdom, freedom from Roman oppression, and a strong Messiah whose reign would never end. I mean, have you ever asked yourself, you know, what is the kingdom of heaven? Have you ever asked yourself, what is the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done, even mean? I don't know, have you asked yourself that? I've asked myself that before. I think to understand the idea of the kingdom of heaven, we ought to take ourselves back to the beginning. We ought to take ourselves back to when God created man, that we might begin our subject working from ground zero, working from the bottom up. So we go back to the beginning, and we see that God, as creator, uh, made this world and placed man here. And man was given authority, man was given a task, and it was to rule, to rule over the living, other living beings, the animals and creatures, and to subdue the earth and take care of it. So man, tasked as stewards of the earth, uh, was supposed to live carrying out God's will in perfection. That is until sin was found in man, until sin arose in the heart of man, and once sin took root, Adam found himself under the curse of sin and death and unable to carry out in perfection God's will, to bring his kingdom, his order, into existence. So God promised that another man would come to undo the mistakes that were made by, this, by Adam. Uh, this is who we understand to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so the remainder of the Bible leads us in a sort of progression as we search through history uh, for the unveiling of the kingdom of heaven. We had some close calls. I mean, uh, when God had promised Adam and Eve that uh, one of the offspring of, of Eve would become this king, this anointed one who would take care of sin. And so when they got Cain, they thought, ah, the man, the man that God's promised. But we know the story of Cain and Abel. We know that Cain turned out to be a murderer. He turned out to be a wicked man, a man who was unable to master sin. And he turned out to not be the one. So we're always, we've always been looking, as we're going through the Bible, we're looking for who's this Messiah? Who's this Messiah? The Jews were always looking for the Messiah. And so we had some close calls. Moses came, but we know Moses fell short, Moses and the law. We had King David at the, at the pinnacle, the golden age uh, of Israel. Perhaps this was the king, um, but even David we saw fall short in his sin and eventually died. But, and so we still find ourselves searching for the king. And then Elvis came. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Um, no, we, we find ourselves searching for this king until we come to the man Jesus of Nazareth here in the book of Matthew. And Matthew presents his gospel. The gospel means good news. Ma Matthew presents his gospel in, with a dogged attempt to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the king. 
to prove that Jesus was the one promised by God in the beginning. And he starts with the lineage of Jesus, tracing him back to Adam. He starts with the declaration of his right and title through, to Messiahship through John the Baptist. He, he, he starts with victory over extreme temptation before Jesus be, even begins his ministry. And then we see the incredible accounts of what Jesus did while he was here, culminating in his self-sacrificial work on the cross where he shed his blood to atone for the sins of man. Fortunately for us, the kingdom of heaven, uh, when we look back through history, is not something that should be a mystery to us. It's not as if Jesus did incredible acts and left us to put the pieces together. Fortunately for us, Jesus himself explained what the kingdom of heaven would be like through a series of teachings. Oftentimes, the meaning was veiled to the outsider in the form of parables or stories, each parable driving home a truth of the kingdom of heaven. And these teachings, these parables, when, when, when taken into account and synced together, give us a clear understanding of the kingdom of heaven. But it takes some time and effort, uh, I think, to put these things together, because there's a lot of different teachings. I mean, uh, a doctor or somebody who studies to be a doctor, or even those who specialize to be a doctor, they spend years in medical, in medical school learning the basic functionality of the human body and how all the things are linked together because it's complex. It's complicated. And so I think in the same way uh, with the kingdom of heaven, there, there's some, some depth to it. There's, some, uh, there's many, many different factors and facets, and, and we, we have to come to an understanding. We have to study, and we have to think deeply. I think the way that we do this, um, well, Jesus tells us the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been revealed to you. It's not something that we, we soak in, you know, we sit in, you know, the lotus position or something and meditate and draw in what the kingdom of heaven is. Rather, it's something we understand through reading and comprehending God's word. And the spirit of God gives us insight into understanding his word. But a list of some of the parables and teachings give, uh, Jesus gives uh, explaining the kingdom of heaven, it's a lot. I mean, just looking in the book of Matthew, we have the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl, the dragnet, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the talents, the landowner, the wedding banquet, the parable of the virgins. We have his teachings out of the Beatitudes. Uh, his encounter with the, the centurion and his faith, the strong man teaching on divorce, the little children teaching on the rich, the, woe, the seven woes, the signs of the end time. Just, just out of Matthew, when he's talk, he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of God is like this, it's, they're specifically cited at least 20 times, and this is just me breezing through Matthew looking at it. It's not even exhaustive. Jesus is always explaining what the kingdom of God is like so it shouldn't be a mystery. The secrets of the kingdom of God are revealed to you. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven were hidden. They were hidden in the Old Testament, which is why we were always searching for it, which is why they were always searching for the Messiah. But when Jesus came, he revealed it. He opened it up that we might be able to understand. So when brought together, when these teachings are brought together, we find the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is different. It's very different than the kingdoms of the world. It's not like the United States. It's not like the ancient kingdoms of, or empires of Rome or Greece. We find actually a different kind of kingdom where Jesus is king, a kingdom. Uh, we find this kingdom where it's something valuable enough that God himself would, would purchase, though it costs his, his own blood, the blood of Jesus. It's where the, the good news of Jesus 
is planted and grows in the heart of man, and this is what transitions a person from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, and that's done by faith. It's a kingdom that's not exclusive to the Jews, but it's a kingdom that is extended to the Gentiles, though it was first to the Jews, and it's freely available for anybody in this world who puts their faith in Jesus. It's a kingdom that starts small and grows at an astounding rate, but then we find is infiltrated by fake disciples. It's a kingdom that's advanced through unconditional methods or unconditional warfare. It's advanced through the fruit of the Spirit. It's advanced through the meek. It's advanced through the foolish, the poor, and the persecuted. It's a kingdom where the wicked will find themselves unprepared and unsuspecting at the return of the king. And it's a kingdom uh, where in the end, uh, we will see a final separation, a complete separation of the, rich, of the righteous in the wicked, and that's eternal. And it's a kingdom where our hope is found in the promise of the resurrection, where we will live in, new, in a new body, in a new heaven, a new earth forever with King Jesus, our Heavenly Father. The kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of this world, and it's eternal. But one of the teachings that which we've read this morning, the parable of the weeds, uh, goes into a little bit more detail in one of these aspects, so we want to discuss it a little bit more in depth this morning, the parable of the weeds. Now, the parable of the weeds, as we read, has some certain key elements. The parable of the weeds has a farmer in a field, and I think we might even have a picture of it. No, we just have a PowerPoint slide. I th- well, the picture will come. Oh, here it is. Okay. The farmer in the field. So this is a picture. Actually, this is taken from uh, Israel in 1925 in the Valley of Jezreel. And so they've got a couple farmers and they've got their oxen uh, plowing the field. And so this, is, this was a typical thing. This was an everyday example. Uh, many people were farmers in the days of Jesus. And so it's something that people could connect with. Oh, and so not many of us are farmers. I don't know how many of us. It, raise the hands. How many people here are farmers? We got like two, three guys. Okay, so it's something that, that I'm not very familiar with, but uh, the farmers here are working their field, All right? And then, so we have a farmer, we've got field, we've got uh, seeds, uh, we've got uh, an enemy, we've got weeds, we've got harvest and harvesters, uh, we've got uh, uh, a picture of gathering things together to burn and gathering things together into the barn, uh, the good fruit and the bad fruit. And it can be mysterious. It can, it can, you, you can ask yourself, you know, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? He's using this, Ill, this, this imagery, imagery and this wording, and I don't really know what he means. Well, guess what? If you don't know what it means, you're in the presence of the disciples who, in verse 36, it says, then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, because they didn't get it. So, Let's look at it. What does Jesus say here? Verse 37, he says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will 
throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So if you didn't know what it meant, Jesus goes on there and explains all the different aspects. He explains that uh, there's there's a farmer, and the farmer is the son of man. This is a term that Jesus used to describe himself. It's a term that's used in Daniel as well. Uh, but Jesus is the son of man, and he sows a seed, which is the people of the kingdom, into the world. Now, you, can, you might be confused because you're like, wait a minute, in the parable of the sower, wasn't the seed just the good news? Well, this is a different parable. So, in that parable, the seed was the good news, the word of God, but in this parable, Jesus is telling us that the seed is the people of the kingdom. The field is the world, not just the church. And then the enemy is real, the evil one. There are weeds, the people of the evil age. There are, the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. And the place where the things that are gathered to burn uh, that is the seed of the evil one. Uh, there's, they're tossed into a blazing furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, uh, signifying uh, emotional agony and gnashing of teeth, the grinding of teeth, uh, representing physical agony. There's uh, a gathering together to the barn uh, for the righteous, and they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father uh, forever. I want to note... Uh, at, I want to know, I think we have a slide uh, with uh, a comparison of the good seed and the weeds. Uh, the word used here uh, for weeds is actually tear or darnel, and uh, it looks just like the wheat uh, when they're growing. They look, they look similar. They look identical, uh, and it's not until uh, the head pops out that they actually look a little bit different, and the difference is especially noted in their color. Well, the tares have more of like a dark gray or blackish color, uh, and the wheat is amber waves of grain, right? Uh, it's golden. And so th there is a, there's a difference there. But another difference between the two is that uh, the tares are, are slightly poisonous. And so if they're eaten, even just a little bit of it eaten, is eaten, uh, then you'll get nauseous and sick and dizzy and lightheaded and such, uh, whereas the wheat is actually, ed you know, you can eat, you can eat it, it's, it's edible. Uh, and so it was a big deal, and uh, one of the, the worst things somebody could do, which was actually punishable in the court of law, uh, was to sow bad seed in somebody else's field. Uh, it was actually a, it was a threat, and it was something that was done in the ancient world. If, if somebody was your enemy, and they threatened to sow bad seed in your field, that would be the seed that they would sow. It was, it was the tear, um, and it was, it was a horrible thing, because the harvest is your livelihood. And so it's somebody who's coming basically to try to take your life. Um, but as many of us have done some weeding in our own yards, we know that if you've got two little plants right next to each other and you pull one up, there's a good chance you're going to pull up the other one right there with it. And so if you've got a field that's full of wheat and tares and you're trying to, you know, just pull up the bad ones, you're going to pull up lots of the good ones too. And so in this parable, uh, just... Uh, just speaking, Lord, the Lord tells the angels, no, we're going to wait until the end, uh, and in the end, then we will uh, separate it out. And that's actually how it was done. We've got a, I got a picture up here, I think, of, uh, of the harvest. Uh, let's see if we got the picture up of the harvest and, and the harvesters. So on the left there, those are some women who are gathering together. They've gathered together the grain in their hand and then, then cut it with a sickle. Um, I was reading the other day in the, in the book of Ruth, 
and uh, was noting how, how Ruth was following. Uh, she was a foreigner uh, and, uh, and poor, and she was following the harvesters, and the, and the poor and the foreigners would go back and, and kind of pick up the leftovers so they could take it home and eat. Uh, they would even, the Jews were instructed to have a certain section of their field, the corners, the edges, uh, were supposed to be given to the foreigners and the poor uh, so that they could have a livelihood. And so this is just a picture of that. And then the picture on the right uh, is when they're threshing, uh, so they're separating out the, the grain from the stalk there. And uh, on the threshing floor is where they would separate uh, the wheat from the tares. And so if there's any weeds or other things, um, the women would go through and they would separate out, they would look at the color of the grain on the heads and they would separate out that which was bad from that which was good. And uh, it was a picture that was very much alive in the days of Jesus as he's explaining this parable to them. And then there would be a gathering together. I've got another picture up here uh, of a grain silo. So this is an ancient, uh, this is silo in Israel. Uh, where it was basically uh, carved into the ground, uh, where they would take grain and store it. Uh, and then uh, we've all seen burn piles as we're driving through. And in August, we're worried that the burn piles are going to get out of control. And uh, we see that in Airway Heights and in Cheney, there's always lots of fires out there. Um, but yeah, what, these are the, the pictures, the images uh, that Jesus gives us, uh, that in the end, there's going to be a harvest of souls. And there's going to be those who are gathered, those who are righteous together, and it's going to be an eternal glory, and then there's going to be those who are gathered together uh, for eternal torment. Not annihilation, it's not something like you spend a little time uh, in the lake of fire uh, where there's burning, and then your time is done, and you're annihilated. It's eternal. It's forever and ever and ever. That's the words that Jesus uses, and we think of, we think of this as, as being a hardship because Jesus is the representation of God's love uh, to us, but Jesus is also the God of truth, of grace. He's full of grace and full of truth, and the truth of God uh, ought to lead us to repentance. So we've seen Jesus. He defines each of the portions of this parable, so I want to do something here. I think a helpful exercise. I want to substitute uh, Jesus's definitions into the original parable. It'll give us a little bit of a smoother reading. I've taken a couple creative liberties in here, um, but I think it would be probably beneficial for us to look at that. So Jesus would say here, the kingdom of heaven is when the Son of Man sows people of the kingdom into this world. But while people weren't paying attention, the evil one came and sowed people of the evil one among the people of the kingdom of, of heaven. And then he went away. And when the people of the kingdom became mature, they produced good fruit. And then the people of the evil one also appeared. And the Son of Man's angels came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow people of the kingdom into your world? Where then did the people of the evil one come from? The evil one did this, he replied. And the angels asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them out? And he says, No, because while you're pulling up the people of the evil one, you may also uproot the people of the kingdom with them. Let both grow together until the end of the age. At that time, I will tell the angels, first collect the people of the evil one and tie them in bundles to be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then gather together the people of the kingdom into my barn where they, where they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So I think it's pretty clear, it's pretty straightforward, but there's a few takeaways I think it would, be, it would benefit us to, to look into in this parable. One takeaway is that it's not good enough just to look good. 
it's not good enough just to look good. If you surround yourself with nice people and do some nice things and expect to slip into heaven with the crowd or with your parents or with your spouse or your friend, it's not going to happen. God is, per- is perceptive of all things. And in the end, you will be laid bare, laid out on the threshing floor, and there's the wheat that will be gathered and the tares will be gathered. Instead, there needs to be something that takes place in your soul, a transformation of heart initiated by the word of God. And when the word of God, the good news of Jesus, is embraced, when we embrace Jesus, we invite to live within our hearts the spirit of God. And this is called being born again. And this is something that's real in the spirit. And this is something that causes real results and changes in our lives. We look and we see that, that salvation is not something that comes by works. We know that the tear looks good on the outside, but inside it is actually poisonous. It doesn't matter how nice the tear looks, how closely it resembles wheat, it is in essence of the wrong substance and will be separated for the burn pile. Jesus, the exact representation of God's love, full of grace and truth, uses the harsh words, they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be emotional agony, weeping, and physical agony, gnashing of teeth. I think that if today we feel uncomfortable because in the depth of your heart you've been faking it and are afraid, if you feel Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, if you feel that there needs to be that change in your life, then the invitation is open. You can let him in. You can call on his name. You can embrace Jesus. You can give yourself fully to him. You can be fundamentally changed in who you are and become of a different substance in your soul, in your spirit. You can become born again because salvation is by faith. The wheat looks good on the outside and inside is of a substance that edifies. I want to note that the wheat still looks good on the outside. I mean, Ken's going through James, and we're going to see in chapter 2 how true faith is accompanied by works. It's a natural outflow of a fundamentally changed inner man. Jesus says himself, a good tree produces good fruit. Wheat produces grain. Uh, A person who claims to be a believer, a Christian, yet lives uh, a reckless, careless life full of sin with no regret or remorse. Of this person, John writes, Whoever says, I know Jesus, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. That's from 1 John 1. Or hear Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, because they're a tear. They're not a wheat. True faith produces good works. So, we need to know that, that uh, looking good isn't good enough. There needs to be a fundamental change in the inner person that's caused by ex- receiving the word of God and becoming born again. So that's one thing we should take away. The second thing I think we should take away is that we need to take caution. We ought not to be uh, naive. We ought not to be surprised that there are nice people who reject Jesus 
even in the church. There's, the tear looks just like the wheat until the fruit comes out. Uh, we, we ought not to be also surprised that the world continues to pro- progress in evil as the kingdom of God even spreads. As we see in this parable that it's intermingled, right? That the wheat and the tares are together and they aren't separated until the end. And in the end, God will reveal. There's also a warning to be, to be wary of the tares for their fruit is poisonous to take in. I mean, we could say that not all that glitters is gold. We've got to be careful of a certain things. There's some warnings that the New Testament writers give us. Uh, they tell us to, to be careful or to take caution, uh, to, to consider and not eat their fruit right away uh, or eat their doctrine right away. The people who deny that Jesus is Christ or deny that he's come in the flesh, there are cults who, who hold to those teachings. We need to be careful of those who deny scriptures in part or in whole or people who don't think that scriptures are good enough, and so they add to it with their own books. There's people who dismiss Genesis, Revelation, and there's people who add passages and books. We need to be beware of those things. We need to be careful of those uh, people who take on the name of Christian or bear the name of Christ, yet have behavior uh, that completely contradicts it. Um, I, I, I remember when I was in college having conversations with even friends of mine who said, well, I could never be a Christian because of all the atrocities that were done in the name of Christ. And uh, the, the, the thing about that argument is that those people weren't believers. The people who had done horrible things, committed uh, terrible crimes against humanity, uh, they don't have the Spirit of God. What's the fruit in their life? The fruit is murder, the fruit is, is hatred, the f- fruit is killing. I mean, I've got a credit card. I, I've, my, I, I tell, help take care of my parents' house, and they give me a credit card uh, with their name on it, and if I misuse their card in their name, then I gotta have to pay for it, right? I don't get away with it in the end, so I'll have to pay for it. It's the same people who try to bear the name of Christ in this world and are using it with disregard. They're gonna have to end up paying for it in the end. Everybody is accountable. So be careful of those who commit atrocities in the name of Christ. Be careful of those who are full of hatred or bitterness or anger. Doesn't the New Testament tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is obvious? Love, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. And the the acts of the fruit or of the flesh are obvious as well. As we read in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 earlier, sexual immorality and greed and idolatry hatred, bitterness, and anger. Be careful of those people who are full of these things. Be careful of those also who just go on sinning. Uh, That is, those who live a lifestyle of sin with blatant disregard for following Jesus' teachings. Don't follow after them. Don't do the things that they do. If they're going off off a cliff, don't follow them. Grace, people, and then people want to cite grace as, it's okay, I get to do what I want to do because God is gracious. Well, grace is not a license to sin, the grace of God is that which gave us victory over sin. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, as he's, talk, he's speaking to the, the churches, he's telling the different churches the things that they're good at, the things that they need to work on. And one of the things he said to the church in Ephesus is that, you know, you guys, you, you work really hard and you have great doctrine, uh, but you forgot your first love. But he says, but you have this going for you. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What was the practice of the Nicolaitans? Well, when you look into it and do some research, it was 
it was people who said that God is gracious, and so my sin, I can continue living the way I want, because God's just going to end up forgiving me in the end anyways. That's the practice of the Nicolaitans. I have a license to sin. I can do what I want, because God's going to forgive me. Jesus hated that teaching. He hated it. It's contrary to what he teaches. So we need to be careful of people who think that, or speak that, or teach that. Don't eat the tares, right? It's going to make you dizzy, make your head spin, going to give you a little sickness. Eat the wheat. There's also a reality that, when, that uh, we're not to re- try to remove ourselves from this world as well. Uh, there are Christians who want to, uh, uh, I guess, cluster together and move away from society. There's some good reasons to do that, especially we see as society progresses in evil. But we note that the wheat and the tares are intermingled. They aren't separated until the end of the age. And Jesus himself calls us to be salt and light of the world. Salt is a preservative against corruption. Salt has to be present among the corruption in order to have any influence on the meat. Salt also is uh, a flavor, a flavoring. It's a seasoning. Um, It improves the flavor. Uh, Also, Jesus, when he says that we're light, light reveals that which is true. Light has to be present on, upon the darkness in order to have an impact on darkness so that truth might be revealed. When things are dark, we can't see what is true. When the light comes on, it's revealed. So Jesus says that you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. You don't put a light under a bushel. You put it up so that people can see. We can't separate ourselves from society, but we can keep ourselves pure. Paul even says when speaking of disassociating from sexually immoral people, uh, that he was not, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immortal or immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But rather, he meant not to associate with those claiming to be Christians that engage in this worldly behavior. So the wheat and the tares continue growing right alongside each other until the end of the age. We have to remain in this world, but we're instructed to remain pure. True religion, uh, as the Bible tells us, is to take care of the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself pure, keep oneself from being corrupted by this evil world. That is what true religion is. Point number three, the third takeaway, is that God judges the heart. Charles Spurgeon on this passage says something powerful. He says that this this parable powerfully teaches that it is God's job to divide in judgment. Magistrates or churches may remove the openly wicked from society, from their society. The outwardly good, who are inwardly worthless, they must leave. For the judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. So, um, this, as, as I was reading through commentaries, some commentaries said, you're never, you're never supposed to make a judgment. We're not allowed to judge anybody or anything. But I don't think that's true. We are supposed to judge things. We're supposed to make decisions. I had to make a judgment as to what I would wear this morning. Some people are thinking it's a good decision. Some people are thinking it's a bad decision. But I had to make a judgment upon that. We're supposed to judge certain things in this world, but also we're supposed to make some judgments about people. And these have to do with their doctrine and behavior, really. I think what you believe is important because your, your doctrine, what you believe is important because it affects how you interact with God and with others. Uh, we've been given the word which we can measure truth by, especially matters concerning God and salvation. 
We're told that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How can you rebuke or correct if you don't make a judgment? If, if somebody's teaching something that is wrong, uh, you have to come back and teach them what is true and right. You have to make a judgment in order to do that. That's out of 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. This is Acts 17. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Right? So they were, when, when Paul was bringing the gospel to them, they went back to the Old Testament and were judging Paul's words according to the word of God. They were passing judgment on Paul's word. So we have to judge doctrine. We have to judge it by the word of God. So if I'm up here speaking or if anybody's speaking or if you're listening to sermons on the radio like Ken at noon or maybe somebody else uh, or online or reading books, you got to judge what people say is true by the word of God. You always got to do it, even if it's me up here. Uh, The second thing that we judge is behavior. How a a person behaves is the outermost expression of who they are internally. We can't always know why somebody does something. It's dangerous to assume motives, but we can see when a life choice aligns with God's will and, under such circum- and, and when it doesn't. And under such circumstances, we might, with tact and under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, confront a person on their behavior, especially if it's a person under your authority, like a son or a daughter, or a person with whom it's appropriate, like a person who is personally sinned against you. Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. John 7, 24, or again in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, uh, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge the outside, outside of the world, outside of the church, the rest of the world, but are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but you, he's talking about somebody who had been living in sexual immorality, he says, expel the wicked person from among you, 1 Corinthians 5. So there is certain behaviors that need to be judged, but we have some conditions. We have some, uh, some boundaries here. If you're going to pass judgment, take note. Jesus tells us, judge first yourself. With the, the plank and the, the splinter, he says, you, wanna, uh, you see your brother and he's got a splinter in his eye. Well, first, what you need to do is take the plank out of your eye so that you could see clearly, but it doesn't end there. He says, so that you can see clearly that you might remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we need to first judge ourselves. If, if I see somebody who's living an immoral life, lifestyle and I am doing that same thing in secret and I'm trying to go tell them what to do, what right do I have really to speak into their lives? I, I ought to make my, right, my life right first so that, I, so that I can speak not hypocritically. So I think we ought to judge ourselves first. That's the words of Jesus. And then I think also we ought to take a gracious posture because we don't know what's in somebody's heart. When somebody's behaving a certain way, we don't really know what their motive is. We don't know all the details. We don't know everything that's going on. And so if you come in, guns blazing, you know, you did this to me, bam, 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 bam. I had one time somebody uh, called me on, on my phone. It was a number I didn't recognize. And I opened up, and I got my phone out, and it's a flip phone, so I opened up the flip phone and heard him and, uh, and said hello. And, and then all of a sudden, just the most, most belligerent, like, cussing that I've heard for like this rant for like 30 seconds. And then I said, sorry, ma'am, I think you have the wrong number. (laughs) 
She was so embarrassed. As she came in guns blazing, she was going to chew this person out. She called me. I don't know who this lady is. She was so, she was so embarrassed. Uh, but we can be embarrassed like that, too. If, we come, if somebody done, has done something to us and we just come guns blazing at them, and they're like, oh, actually, that's not really what happened. Here's what happened. Or, oh, actually, here's the reason why I did it. And then we find ourselves embarrassed. We don't know really what's in somebody's heart. We ought to take always a gracious posture um, and always assume uh, the best of somebody until we really find out what's going on. The third thing is to remember that the goal is always restoration. If you're going to pass judgment, the goal is always restoration. It's not like that person sinned, let's see how, how, you know, how far I can bury them into the ground with my words uh, because of what they had done. You're terrible. I can't believe you did this. And then you just tear them down, tear them down, tear them down. And you're like, I think my job is done here. See you later. Like, that's, not, that's not how, the, how it's supposed to go. The, the goal is restoration. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and we're supposed to carry that on. That is to reconcile God to, or to people with, back into proper relationship with God and into proper relationship with each other. So if somebody is living a lifestyle that's just blatant and wrong, the goal isn't to put them under. The goal is to restore them to God, to restore them to right relationship. And this is uh, what Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18 as he lays out for us, you know, if somebody's sinned against you, you go to him and try to resolve the situation uh, that you might patch it up. And if that doesn't work, grab another person. It's not so that you can gang up on them. It's so that the situation can be resolved so that they can come to repentance. And if that doesn't work, then you get the church together and, and you try to resolve the situation. And if that doesn't work, then you treat them like they're not a Christian because they're not acting like Christians. So, there are things that we have to judge. We have to judge doctrine, we have to judge behavior, but there are things that we leave to God because we're unable to judge. We can't judge somebody's motives. We can't judge somebody's heart. We can't judge whether or not even somebody's saved. When speaking of David's older brother, and uh, the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We don't need to go on a who's a real Christian witch hunt. Uh, the acts of the Spirit are fairly obvious, as are the acts of the flesh. A Christian who's living in the flesh and, becomes, and gets rebuked by the Lord, either by the Word of God or in their spirits, or they get talked to by another fellow believer, I think a Christian will eventually repent. When, when I do things against God, I, I get the Spirit of God that convicts me, I get the Word of God that convicts me, and He brings it up over and over and over again, and I live in that constant state of torment until I repent. And then when I repent, it's, it's gone, I'm in right relationship with the Lord again. But that's the mark of a Christian. A Christian is a repentant person, a Christian is a humble person, and a Christian will succumb to the Spirit of God because Christ is their Lord. And so, if somebody who is your Lord, your King, is an authority over you, and you take orders from Him. And so, as a Christian, I live a life submitted to God, including uh, with my sin. I submit that to God, and I eventually repent. I live a life, and, and I live a life of increasing holiness in devotion to the Lord. Sometimes people repent quickly. Sometimes people repent slowly. One time, uh, I was working a job, and I was working with another Christian uh, a few years ago, and they asked, you know, hey, there's this guy, 
and he's a really rough guy, and uh, he says he's become a Christian, but I don't really know, like, you know, how do you know if somebody's really a Christian? And I said, time. Time. Time will tell. <laughs> you know, if he's a Christian, he's going to uh, live an increasing life of holiness. Maybe right now he's rough. Maybe right now he's not repenting of something. But in time, a Christian is going to repent, and, and their entire life as it's laid bare before the Lord uh, will show whether or not he's a believer. At the end of the day, we trust God to do the separating, which he's going to do at the end of the age. And until that day, we, have, we live a life in the kingdom as subjects of the kingdom, intermingled uh, with the tares of this world. But, so, uh, it's not good enough to be good, it's, uh, we ought to take caution, and we ought to, to realize that God judges the heart. Jesus came to establish a kingdom which looks and operates differently than the kingdoms of this world. In this parable, we learn the reality that the wicked will continue right alongside the righteous until the end of the age, at which time God will make the separation. And that is what this parable is about. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much uh, for the word that you've given to us this morning. And we pray, God, uh, that we might come to know uh, the teachings of your kingdom more and more and have a good, solid understanding that it would not be a mystery because you tell us that the kingdom of God, the secrets of the kingdom, have been revealed to us. We thank you for that, God. I pray if anybody's here that feels like they've been faking it or they feel like they're a terror and, and they want to get right with you, Lord. I pray that they would uh, submit their hearts to you, God. I pray that they would call on your name, Lord. I pray, God, that they, they, would, they would become uh, subjects of the kingdom, Lord, and, and call on you as king, God, that they could be born again. I, take, I pray, Lord, that, that we would be able to take caution, Lord, of those uh, teachings and things that distract us, Lord, uh, from you and what your purposes are, God. And I pray, Lord, that we might know, God, that you judge the heart and the motive of man and all things will be laid bare in the end. We trust you, Lord, in all these things. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.